You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning. Welcome again to Grace Community Church. If it's your first time here, we are so glad that you are here with us to worship the Lord in truth and in spirit. Uh, We're in a series on the book of Daniel, one of the great prophetic books of the Old Testament. Daniel, by the way, happens to be the husband of our missionary, Joy, Daniel Kernicki. I I do want to say this about uh, what Joy was talking about. Allison and Joy were sharing this morning. Um, it's, It's just the way it is that when a single missionary, particularly a female single missionary, gets married, her support will drop. Dramatically, We were able to increase Joy's support as a church this year, along with all of our other missionaries. But it's never, look, we're never opposed to individuals giving to missionaries beyond what we are able to give as a church. But you need to work with them individually. But it will be fascinating for you. If you just spend a little time talking to Daniel and Joy after the service, you will get a sense of uh, what they are able to do. Well, Daniel, let's let's... Talk about his namesake, Daniel, in the Bible. Daniel lived during the time of the Babylonian Empire. His prophecies in chapter 8, which is where we are today, are pretty heavy. So that's why I've got two chairs up here. I can go either way. That's a nice thing. Uh, But his prophecies, actually, I'm trying to make them a lot more accessible today. Uh, They pointed to the Persian Empire under Cyrus, uh, and to the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, and then to four generals who took over after Alexander's death. We're particularly interested in the Greek ruler of Palestine in the second century BC. Now, Daniel was prophesying somewhere around 550, 547 BC. He's talking about something that's going to happen 10 years later. Persia's going to take over Babylon. He really doesn't talk much about that, but it's going to happen within 10 years. Persia's going to blow up as an empire, and then later um, we're going to have another empire, the Greeks, who will be uh, taken over, and all of this is going to take some... And by the time you get down to the four, it's like 400 years, all the way to one... 74 BC to 163. So it's a long time and a lot of different players in this field. But there's one in particular that we are very interested in. He's way over here. He's one of the four rulers. And he's the ruler of the Seleucid Empire. His name is Antiochus IV. He gave himself the nickname Epiphanes, which means divine manifestation. So he claimed to be a god in the flesh And this man rules over Syria and Palestine, all of the area where Israel was. We um, recognize this man as a great persecutor of the nation of Israel. And not only so, some people say he foreshadowed the one that we know coming as the Antichrist. Since we're going to be moving through Daniel, uh, Daniel 8, in rather a hurry, and we're searching for application as we go, a little context will be helpful. Even if you're not a history buff, 
this might interest you. Again, Daniel receives this vision only 10 years later, a little before or a little after 10 years, Babylon is going to fall to the Medes and the Persians. By the time Babylon fell, Persia had ascended over the Medes, and so it was really just the Persian Empire coming in and destroying Babylon. Um, and, And they did so without a fight, but that's another story. Probably not for another day in this series. By the time um, we get there and we see the Persians taking over Babylon, they're going to rule for 200 years. They're represented, the Medes and the Persians are going to be represented in Daniel's vision by a ram with two horns. And one of those horns is larger than the other, symbolizing Persia's superiority over the Medes. Greece will be represented by a goat with a single horn that moves so fast and so violently in conquering the Persians that his feet hardly touch the ground. They don't even touch the ground. He's got wings and he's flying across, defeating the Persians. Babylon was in modern-day Iraq and Persia, modern-day Iran. The Greek empire was in modern-day Greece, thankfully. So, if you have been on a Mediterranean cruise in the Greek Isles, you're ready for Daniel 8. You'll understand it. Babylon, Iraq, Persia, Iran. But since the maps that I searched just wouldn't be helpful to explain all of these comings and goings in the empire, let's look at it another way. Let's say the Babylon Empire is represented by Tennessee with the capital in Nashville. Now, you never knew that Nebuchadnezzar was a country music fan, but sure enough, there he is. He sets up headquarters in Nashville, and in fact, the headquarters stay in Babylon for a long time. This is where uh, the Persians often ruled from, was in Babylon. Then, Tennessee was conquered by North Carolina, representing the Persian, in fact, Persian Empire. And in fact, I need to say just a little. So the Persians and the Medes, the Persians were south of the Medes. So you've got the Persians in North Carolina, and they ascended over Duke, I mean, Virginia. Let's just say Virginia. They ascended over Virginia and swallowed Virginia up, and now North Carolina, it's North Carolina's empire. They go in and conquer Tennessee, and they go all the way out to Kansas and Oklahoma. But that made Greece, which is represented by Colorado, you getting this? It made Greece hopping mad. And they said, you've offended us, and we're going to do something about it. They always spoke in that language, you know. Anything you do, you know what it's like. It's like a bully on the playground. What'd you say? What'd you look at me? I didn't look at you anyway. Oh, yes, you did, and I'm going to do something about it. Well, Greece was really upset. And they, and it really, look, it wasn't even Colorado. It's just a large county in Colorado. Macedon in Greece, Macedonia. It's just a large county. There were 50,000 soldiers in Alexander's army. Darius III had access. And now, granted, they were spread all the way back to North Carolina, down to Florida, up, you know, a little ways. 
But he had access to 2.5 million soldiers. 50 times more soldiers than Alexander had when he began his empire attacking the Persians. You know what it would be like? It would be like North Dakota getting all its troops together and going down and whipping California on California's hometown with tricky supply lines. This was an amazing feat that Alexander the Great accomplished. Well, that's enough history for the moment. Because of the nature of today's text, we can believe we'll we'll be right back into history. But hopefully that'll just get a picture in your mind where these armies are moving. Now, they're moving across Europe and Asia, but and down into Egypt. Uh, but this is just maybe just a little bit of a sense of, of what's going on here. I'm not going to ask you to stand for the reading of even a portion of today's text, just the way it's structured and laid out. The first eight verses are the prophecy of the bit that I've just been talking about. But once you get that in your head, then hopefully the rest will follow. So let's get going, beginning in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the king... Uh, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after which, after that which appeared to me at the first. So the vision he had had before in chapter 7, now we got (coughs) the one coming in chapter 8. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel which is in the province of Elam, and I visited, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. It was a man-made canal. This doesn't mean that Daniel was in Susa or modern-day Iran, which would be like North Carolina, remember? But really, he was in Babylon or in Nashville, Tennessee, but he saw himself as being in Charlotte, let's say, the winter capital of the Persian Empire, which is where Xerxes I was when Esther became his queen. Then verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. (laughs) No beast could stand before him and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. This would happen when Persia defeated the Medes and moved to conquer lands and to rule over people. Verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west. That's over in Colorado or Greece. He came across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I think it was at Isis or Issus where the first battle took place between Alexander and Darius, and there was water between them. And the, 
and, and the horses crossed the water and came it. So very detailed prophecies by Daniel. So he came to the ram with two horns that I'd seen standing on the bank of the, the, the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. Alexander pretty much accomplished this single-handedly. His men fought for him. But it was Alexander who said, I'm not afraid of an army of lions that are led by a sheep. I'm afraid of an army of sheep that are led by a lion. And Alexander was that lion. He came with fury and wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Even though Alexander had conquered so much, he was a mere mortal who only thought he was a god. And he died less than eight years after conquering the Persian Empire at the very height of his power. So I guess he wasn't a god at all. One of the lessons of this chapter is that earthly kingdoms never last, although they can terrify during the time that they are in power. You remember how powerful and devastating the Nazi Germany machine was and the terror that they brought when they conquered peoples, especially to the Jews, even in their own land and to the nations wherever they went. Ralph Davis made this connection between Alexander's demise and the end of the Nazis. Quote, It's just that great horns are mortal. So a ruler can die and the whole enterprise fall apart. The text implies that superpowers are not really safe places. They may get knocked off or simply fade out. They're such tenuous affairs. One can get a microcosmic taste of this. In the aftermath of the Nuremberg trials in 1946, Germans were being tried, Germans, some, some others, Austrian, uh, Austrians, some who had participated with the Nazis, were, were, were tried and found guilty, and several of them were hanged. After the execution of Nazi celebrities on October 16, 14 bodies including those of Goering, who had cheated by managing suicide, Ribbentrop, Keitel, Rosenberg, Frank, Stryker, and Yodel were delivered to a Munich crematorium. That same evening, a container holding the amassed ashes was driven through the rain into the Bavarian countryside. After an hour's drive, the vehicle stopped. And the ashes were poured into a muddy ditch. Five or six years before, these men could dominate and intimidate. But that night, a drizzle washed them away. Close quote. 
So as Daniel's vision continues, there's good news to come. Although the bad news is going to swallow up the good news whole. But before the bad news has time to relax, the Lord's going to intervene on the behalf of his people. The temple would be rebuilt. Daniel's like, wait, what? I've got a vision of the temple in Israel. The temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians, you remember. This is before it was rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt, but then it's going to be desecrated. And God's people are going to be persecuted greatly. After that, though, God would destroy the one who attacked God and his people. Remember, Daniel was still under Babylonian rule when he foresaw all these these events. So it's no wonder that he was alarmed and, and spent a lot of time pondering the visions. So at Alexander's untimely death, but that's the point, isn't it? Nothing is really untimely. It's all according to God's will. At Alexander's death, four of his generals split up the kingdom. We're going to learn more about these kingdoms when we get to chapter 11, but our focus today is on the Seleucid Empire that ruled over Jerusalem. From the time, now think about this, from the time that the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem early in the 6th century B.C. until the middle of the 2nd century B.C., almost 150 years, not quite, 120, 30 years. No, I'm sorry, 330 years. Emperors left Jerusalem and Jewish worship alone. They just let them, us, the Jews, just let them do what they want to do. That would change in 175 BC when Antiochus IV took the throne of of this territory for himself. He even gave himself the name, as we've already said, Epiphanes, divine manifestation. He's the brute that caused the Jews so much trouble. And we read about him beginning with verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Now, again, almost everyone agrees that this is Antiochus IV, um, Epiphanes. So we just call him Antiochus Epiphanes usually. We're going to see this imagery again in Revelation, but this is probably confusing because we've seen a horn, a little horn, that grew great in chapter 7. This is not the same horn. (laughs) In the other chapter, in in, in chapter 7, the little horn came out of the fourth beast, which was the Roman Empire in possibly well into um, history all the way to the end of time. Some people think of it that way. But that horn, you remember, rose up, displaced three of the other horns. There were ten horns on that beast head. Well, now over in chapter 8, there's a beast, and he's the third beast. This was the fourth beast. Now we're going back to the third beast, and he's got four horns growing up, After he dies, four generals under Alexander's rule 
split up the kingdom into four different sections. Antiochus Epiphanes was in the Seleucid Empire that oversaw Syria and Palestine. And through trickery, he came to power, or through power and deceit, and then through trickery, he devastated the Jews. Now, the, the, the host and stars of verse 10 that he would throw to the ground were most likely representing God's people, not at the end of the age, but at the end of the second or in the mid-second century B.C. Verse 11, and if you're lost by now, just hang on. We'll get to something that's a little better in just a few minutes. It became great. This is that little horn. As great as the prince of the host And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. So, I, you know, look, if I'm just sitting down reading Daniel, I've got no idea what that means. Unless, of course, I've had training. What is he talking about here? Antiochus fought against God. His his aim was God. He eliminated public worship and he crushed God's people. With our new understanding, excuse me, our New Testament understanding, when it says that he fought against the prince of hosts, we can say he was fighting against Jesus, although he didn't know his, his name. He didn't know Jesus' name. In the same way that Joshua... When he drew his sword and said, are you for us or against us in Joshua chapter 5? And he said, I'm the captain of the Lord's army. Take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. Almost certainly the pre-incarnate Christ standing before Joshua. And likely the one that Antiochus was fighting against was Jesus. Again, although he didn't know his name. Antiochus fought against this God. He forced a host of Jews to adopt Greek customs and religious practices. He forbade Jews to practice sacrifices commanded in the Mosaic laws. He burned the Torah, thus throwing um, truth to the ground. And anyone who was found with a with a, with a section or a portion or a copy of the Torah, would, would be executed. Don't fail to note that God said this punishment was because of transgression. Or very likely what's saying here is that Jews were falling back into sin. Now there's another kind of transgression coming up in verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking... And another holy one said to the one who spoke. So it's two angels speaking to each other. For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the the giving over to the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? In addition to stopping the sacrifices to Yahweh, Antiochus set up an idol in the temple, most likely a statue of Zeus. And he sacrificed a pig on the altar. 
You can imagine how outraged God's people were. Especially before Jesus. Especially before Jesus saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, I would fight. The ways that the Jews knew that God was for them was when they would defeat their enemies. And so they ask, how long? In verse 14, he says, for 2,300, 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place. Now, look, this referred to sacrifices, but we don't know if that's 2,300 days, which would be a little over six years, or 1,150 days of sacrifices because there were sacrifices twice a day, morning and evening. Either way, and that's a little over three years. So either way, there are events that happened during the time of Antiochus that would fit in, into those time frames that would under, help us understand that God does what he says he's going to do. In 164 B.C., Judas Maccabeus defeated the Greek forces, cleansed the temple, consecrated the altar, and reestablished proper sacrifices. So the Jews rebelled, the sons of Maccabees especially. Judas Maccabeus led the, the charge, and they overthrew the Greek forces and did all of the things that they understood God would want them to do. And this was one of the most significant event, events in Jewish history, God's people leading to the establishment of Hanukkah. While not many of us would have similar tales, just think about the pattern in your own life. Anybody in one of those seasons that when it rains, it pours? I mean, you have stuff going on in your life and you think, this is all, I can't take any more than this. And then something else comes along that is equally, and it just happens that way. After the rain, sunshine. That doesn't mean that the rain didn't do damage. But wherever you are in life, know this. God is faithful to his people. And you can always trust God. That's the theme of this series in Daniel. Yahweh is faithful to his people. Let's keep moving. Verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice on the banks of the Yali, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So first of all, just stop. Gabriel, the same angel who came to Zechariah and told him that John, he would have a son named John, John the baptizer, in, in fact, and the same angel Gabriel who came to Mary and announced the incarnation, this Gabriel shows up to Daniel. He's there for the big stuff. Just know this, if Gabriel ever comes to you, big stuff is, it, there's a lot 
afoot. And I tell you what, I won't be joking if any angel gives me the slightest sight of him. It will be frightening to the max. So you can imagine how Daniel is feeling in all of this. Then verse 18, and when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. You need to stand up, son, to hear what is going to be said. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, that gives us an idea when he's saying, this is, I'm talking about the end times. He's not talking about the ultimate end times. He's talking about the end of this desecration of the temple by Antiochus. So prophecy oftentimes has a near fulfillment and a fulfillment that is further out. In this case, he's not talking about a fulfillment in 164 and then a fulfillment at the end of time. In this case, he's talking about right here. I'll try to differentiate whenever it comes up in Daniel as best I understand what it's meant for. But this is, so what's the big deal? You know, people think, so, oh, then what are we studying this for? What are we studying this for? This is an indication that God is sovereign, that he knows everything, that he's working everything for his glory and ultimately for our good. It's always for our good, but he's doing it so that one day when we sing his praises in eternity, we're going to understand everything, everything, about everything that has happened to you, to the world. It'll all make sense. And I don't know if it happens immediately or if it'll happen through eternity, throughout eternity, that we understand the riches of the gospel greater and greater as we go. But for right now, what Daniel 8 does, it says, it tells us, trust God. He's faithful. He's going to take care of us. Verse 20. Gabriel explains the vision of what was to be, and it's what we've already gone over. So we'll go, we'll go as quickly as Alexander, okay? Right across the plains. As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place, broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. The power is diluted. And at the latter end of the, their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face who understands riddles shall arise. Antiochus, that's who he, he, he took, took his position through power. He deceived the Jews and then overcame them with power. Verse 24, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and so shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. 
Fortunately, there's no one in this room that has this issue. In his own mind, we're not, none of us are legends in our own mind, right? Without warning, but, but let me stop on that. I, I thought about that a lot this week. Um, the fury and the anger with which Alexander attacked When we're angry and furious, we're out of control. There's no way we're going to live a life pleasing to the Lord with this pride and this arrogance that just destroys anybody or anything in its way. Middle of 25, without warning, he shall destroy Many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but not with human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Before I read verse 27, maybe this is why. This is why John was so devastated when no one was found worthy to open the seal at the end of Revelation 4. He had seen God, and he knows that God in his power is going to rule the world. But he doesn't know what's in that scroll. And, and by the way, it's one of the things that I came across in the, um, in the commentaries this week. Why, why is this a good thing when you know it's going to be really bad news for your people? Well, it's still good to know to prepare our hearts to be ready for whatever comes our way. And John was weeping because we don't know how to be prepared. We don't know what's to come. But then, of course, Jesus was found worthy to open the scroll. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So you're in good company if it's not making sense to you. We got a lot more time between us, so we've got a lot more resources. But Daniel didn't know. Suppose you had been given this vision, and it concerned your children and your grandchildren. And you knew that devastating times were ahead. And you don't, know, you, you don't know when any of this is going to happen. He doesn't say in 200 years this will happen. It's just, it's going to happen. I imagine it would have a similar effect on you than it had on Daniel. And you know what? We could just stop right here with no application. Just like Daniel did. Just go home, get in the bed, you know, cover us, put the head, uh, cover our heads. But in fact, I'm going to offer a response to what we have heard this morning. It's going to be unpacked much more in home group this week or in your family devotions. Um, We know that times are going to get much worse before Jesus returns unless you're a hardcore post-millennialist. So what manner of people ought we to be? We should be faithful and obedient and prayerful 
So let's apply it in this way. In view of our text and the awareness that difficult days might lie ahead, we should first of all pray for protection against heresy. Look, the Jews allowed themselves to be deceived by Antiochus and his officials, and they found themselves in a terrible spot. The apostles who wrote the New Testament letters offered encouragement and instruction, and most of the time they were upbeat, a couple of exceptions. Galatians, that was a doctrinal thing, and and, and Corinthians was doctrinal too, but it really moved over to behavioral. But most of the time, these letters are very uplifting and encouraging. But they got really upset when false teaching was afoot. When times were good, they said, look, you may need to exercise church discipline. Whenever there was a false teacher in the midst, they said, get them out now. Now. We can't allow this. Cannot allow the gospel to be compromised. The Jews of Antiochus' day allowed themselves to be seduced by trickery and found themselves in a world of hurt, both with Antiochus and with Yahweh. Pray for protection against heresy. Second, pray for protection against arrogance. That was every emperor's problem. Arrogance. And they did much damage with their anger. Paul reminds believers in Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And this is in the midst of him talking about spiritual gifts or at the beginning of him talking about that after we've dedicated our lives to the Lord. Grace is a good antidote to arrogance. Third, pray for protection against carelessness. The Jews were careless with temple practices and they lost the freedom to worship God as he commanded. Let's not be careless. And there is much pressure to this, for this. Let's not be careless about our worship of God. Fourth, pray for protection against apathy about God's kingdom. God's kingdom will prevail. Do not be distracted by politics or so distracted by politics or pleasures or the social groups that are angry with everyone else that you lose sight of God's kingdom. It's his kingdom, and he will build it. But what a privilege it is for us to serve Jesus in his kingdom, the kingdom that is already not yet. It's already here. We are serving him in his kingdom as we eagerly await his return. So as we transition to the Lord's table, I want to share a prayer that was written nearly 500 years ago. Johnny Gibson, who is alive and well today, has written three wonderful liturgical devotionals, one for general worship, another for Advent, a copy of which a couple in our church 
gave me just at the beginning of Advent. And I cannot tell you how much it's blessed me. I have the other two now. And then <clears throat> a new devotional that came out for the period of time between Pascha or the Easter season and Pentecost. I want to close our time this morning with a Trinitarian prayer included in Be Thou My Vision, given by Johann Habermann, a 16th century German Lutheran theologian. This is his prayer. Your glorious majesty surround me. The blessed Trinity protect me. And the eternal Godhead preserve me. Your unlimited mercy support me. Your loving kindness encompass me. Your favor make me to rejoice. The eternal truth of God be my delight. The saving knowledge of Christ strengthen me. And the all-prevailing grace of God be sufficient for me. May the grace of God the Father lead me. The wisdom of God the Son be my consolation. And the power of the Holy Spirit enlighten me. Lord, my creator, stand by me. My redeemer, save me. And my comforter, dwell with me. And all God's people said, amen. Well, I'm going to ask those who are serving and the worship team to come forward this morning. And as they are coming, I want to give a few instructions for our partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning. Um, <clears throat> first of all, I want you to know that the bread is gluten-free, so you don't have to worry about that if you have gluten allergies. But second, we will be receiving the elements at the front tonight, uh, today. You will come forward, and there will be a station in front of each section. And so you, if you would, just go to the station in front of your section Receive the elements, take them back to uh, your seat, and we will serve from there. <clears throat> this meal is intended for believers. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, we invite you to join with us in this meal. Uh, if you have not trusted Christ, then just, it's okay. Either walk by and don't receive the elements or stay where you are. You don't have to come forward. If you are not able to come forward, there will be someone in the back. If you just raise your hand, they'll be looking out for you and they'll serve you at your seat. You know, every message I want to say that the way to Christ is not by being good enough. The way to Christ is not by accomplishing goals Checking list, it's not, that's not what it's about. We are all as sinful before Christ as those people that we've read about these, this morning. We all have the potential to be that. We all could be Alexander the Great or Antiochus Epiphanes if the Lord let us go our own way. But our hope is in Jesus. When Adam and Eve sinned, they started walking away from God and continued. And we are all born walking away from God. And we can't say, okay, you know, I'm just going to do better. 
I tried so many times when I was a teenager, what we used to call it turning over a new leaf. I was going to be a different person. I was going to quit doing bad things and start doing good things. It never worked. And maybe it's worked for you, and it's even more dangerous if you think I'm doing okay. Because we can never be good enough. God is perfect. Perfection that we can't know, describe. That's why he's called holy. It means ultimately other than. But because of our sin, and because God loved us, he sent his son Jesus to be one of us. That's what we remember at this table today. Jesus, when he took the bread, said, this is my body, broken for you, given for you. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the sins of many. Do this as often as you remember, as you, do, as you partake in remembrance of me. Our hope is to repent of our sins, to say, God, I'm a sinner. I, I, I know I don't deserve. I know I can't be good enough. <clears throat> but then also to believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he was paying for my sin. For your sin. And to receive that. And to say Lord. I believe that Jesus died for me. Oh Lord Jesus save me. He'll do it. And if you have not. Made this decision before. Why not make it. As you partake this morning. Because we all confess. This is what we believe. We're preaching the gospel. You come forward. And you partake. You get those elements and you go back and then we protect together. You're preaching the gospel. The scripture tells us to examine ourselves. It's more about arrogant sin than, than the kind of sin that you struggle with. Like, oh, I can't believe I did that again. Look, don't dare let that keep you from coming. Confess your sin to the Lord in this moment. I will pray a prayer of collective repentance after we, I give you just a few seconds to pray on your own and then we'll partake so if you would if you need in your heart to confess sin this is the time to do it Father we Confess that we have sinned. Our feet are dirty and they need to be cleaned. Our body was cleansed when Jesus washed our sins away. But our feet are dirty and, and even still, he's the one cleaning our feet. As we confess that we have done things this week we ought not to have done in word, in deed, in thought. We have left undone things that we ought to have done. We have sinned. Thank you for the forgiveness that is promised in this meal. In Jesus. Bind our hearts to you and to one another as we partake together. Your blessings, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, 
go to graceccnc.org.